Welcome to the New Legal Realism Podcast. The New Legal Realism Project promotes rigorous and genuinely interdisciplinary scholarship on law and action. Today's podcast is an interview with Alexandra Huneus, whose scholarship focuses on international law and human rights with an emphasis on Latin America. She is a professor of law and the director of the Center for Law, Society, and Justice at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. She received her PhD, JD, and BA from University of California, Berkeley, and was a postdoc at Stanford University's Center on Development, Democracy, and the Rule of Law. In 2017, she was named to serve a 10-year term as foreign expert jurist in the Colombian jurisdiction Para La Paz, a court created as part of the Colombian peace process. At the UW, she currently serves as the director of the Center for Law, Society, and Justice. She is also the co-founder of the University of Wisconsin Human Rights Program and was director of the Global Legal Studies Program until last year. She is a member of the American Society of International Law and the Law and Society Association, and she has served on the board of editors of the American Journal of International Law and of Law and Social Inquiry. Welcome, Professor Hineas. Uh, would you mind describing your research for our listeners? My focus writ large on, in my research is fundamental rights in law and politics in Latin America, and my emphasis has been Latin America. And over the past decade or so, I've been particularly writing about the rise of the Inter-American Court of Human Rights and its growing engagement with courts in different countries in Latin America and social movements in those countries. Hmm. But over the past couple of years, I've been developing a new line of research that I'm, I'm very excited about, which looks at legal innovations in Latin America um, and, and still focused on rights, but around the environment and law. So in particular, the evolution uh, in the past decade or so of the rights of nature in Ecuador and the emergence in Colombia of claims that indigenous territories must be treated um, by the law, not as land, but as the subject of rights. And I think uh, in the broadest terms, I'm thinking about the way that our environmental crisis is changing the way that we conceive of the relationship between humans and nature or the environment. Um, and I'm interested in how that is getting expressed in law in Latin America. Got it. Um, and you mentioned Ecuador and Colombia. Is there a reason you um, have focused on those countries? And are there other Latin American countries that you focus on? Yeah, I began my work focused on Chile because I'm originally from Chile. My, my oh. family immigrated to the United States when I was a child and I always grew up very connected to Chile. Um, but then through, through my work in Chile, I began engaging with the Inter-American Court of Human Rights and found that the, one of the countries that was most interesting in its, in its relationship to international law and human rights was Colombia. Um, so I got very engaged in Colombia and the peace process in Colombia um, and got engaged with the special jurisdiction for the peace, the Peace Court of Colombia. And then with Ecuador, I haven't yet engaged very much, um, but I'm very interested in, in furthering my engagement with Ecuador because of their environmental law um, 
and the rights of nature work that their judges have been doing. Okay, great. Thanks. Is there um, maybe a topic that you're working on that you can tell us a bit more about? One of the things that I'm working on with with a co-author, Pablo Rueda, who's also a sociolegal scholar at the University of Miami, and we've been looking closely at the innovative work that the jurisdiction of the peace in Colombia, this transitional justice court that was created in 2018, um, has been doing. They, they have worked really closely with indigenous communities um, and have a commitment to legal pluralism, to including um, their law uh, in, and and close in close dialogue into their uh, into the hip the peace court's own resolutions, um, and in doing this, they're they're running into issues, which of course, um, when you're trying to bring in two different worlds, two different legal traditions, and really two different uh, what what some would call perspectives, but others are calling two different worlds into one law. Um, you run into many difficult issues. So now they're struggling with what does it mean when we've, we've declared that the territories of indigenous peoples are victims of the war. And that means that the territories, not just the people <laughs> that inhabit them, the territories themselves have uh, rights, have a right to truth, a right to justice, a right to participate in the proceedings. Um, so all of these very complex legal questions arise as to, well, then what is that, you know, who speaks for the territories and what does this mean in terms of criminality and criminal responsibility? Um, so those, those are the questions that uh, we are finding very, you know, hard. they're finding hard to answer. We're finding fascinating and tough to grapple with. Um, but we think that they contribute to conversations that are emerging in international human, humanitarian law, including um, the push to make ecocide a crime in the Rome Statute of the International Criminal Court. So we're trying to bridge those two sets of conversations. What Can you explain what ecocide is? Ecocide is, I mean, the, the that is a question, <laughs> but ecocide is um, is the uh, crime of harming uh, an, uh, an ecosystem oh, um, okay. and killing an ecosystem, which um, many are arguing should be part of international criminal law. That it's something that people should be charged with, and it's something that we should take as seriously as we do crimes against humanity, war crimes, the crime of aggression and genocide. Um, so they're trying to add a fifth crime to the Rome Statute of the International Criminal Court. And we're trying to um, bridge that debate and that push to create to uh, have ecocide in the Rome Statute on the one hand to the work that's taking place in Colombia and the work of the HIP and its connection to indigenous peoples and their conceptions of their territories and how they've been harmed to the war, um, by the war. So that's what we're trying to make connections with in our scholarship. That's so interesting. I look forward to reading um, this when you publish on this topic. <laughs> Thank um, you. <laughs> and can you describe what your methodological approach is? 
Yeah, I can try. <laughs> um, I've always engaged in a variety of qualitative methods. Um, and I think, I think if there's a pattern to my work, it's that once I have a topic, I'll start by a, a, amassing <laughs> a database of, of documents, whether they're judgments or other legal documents or interview transcripts or a mix. And usually I'll, I'll throw that all into NVivo. Uh, which allows me to to compare and and find patterns and variation um, from which then I begin to draw questions and to construct theories, and yeah, I, I will some you know draw both questions and make theories at once, which is kind of a messy way to go about things. And I I've never been able to work straight like do hypothesis testing or work from case study straight to theory generation. I always sort of seem to mix the two in a back and forth um, struggle that takes time and patience, uh, and which I wouldn't recommend to others if you can help it. And then uh, I always talk to people, um, even in my more legal and doctrinal work, I find that talking to people is one of the really compelling things about doing research and makes it come alive. So I always use interviews, whether I'm doing it because I'm studying people's thinking as an end in itself, or because I want to know what people think about the phenomenon that I am studying as an end in itself. Um, but interviews are, are an essential ingredient for me. Uh, I think that the way I find things to study, like that I get inspired to research things, has always been hand, through hands-on work. Like I, I began working on the Inter-American Court because I was working on a case before the court, and I realized there was very little written about it at the time that I was working on that case. So I started sort of asking questions that I couldn't find answered uh, in the literature because of the work that I was doing. And it was through my work accompanying the Colombian peace process and the special jurisdiction for the peace, the court that was created in that process that I became engaged in, in researching and writing about it. And even my dissertation work um, grew through my work on the ground conducting interviews for a journalist. I was translating for her with the women of the Atacama Desert in Chile who had lost husbands and children um, during the Pinochet dictatorship. So uh, yeah, I'm always sort of working um, and through that work begin to ask questions and do research, which which is makes me happy to be at a law school because it makes it easier to be involved in work, legal work that then moves me to research questions. Yeah, and, and so what are the theoretical debates that your research typically engages? Currently, um, I'm asking, you know, I'm looking at rights of nature and calling land subjects of rights. So I'm asking, one, one of the literatures I found myself engaging with talk is, is about rights talk and how, using fundamental rights in, in political struggles changes the way we make decisions of, about natural resources and, and the decision-making processes around natural resources. Um, there's this long tradition in, in socio-legal studies of, of looking at how the turn to rights and law reshapes social movements and political struggles, um, as well as the rights themselves. And I really, enjoyed re-engaging with the work of a late and amazing um, anthropologist and socio-legal scholar, Sally Mary, and, and I'm trying to deepen her 
conceptualization of how rights are um, adopted and used in, in local settings, which she calls vernacularization. And I've also really appreciated the work of Lisa Van Halle, her engagement with environmental activism um, and her conceptualization of legal opportunity structures. So that's that's been a, a focus of mine. And then I've in another article with a fellow Law and Society scholar Paolo Rea, we're grappling with the literature on legal pluralism, trying to understand how indigenous concepts come into law, but also struggling with this anthropological scholarship, which isn't really, hasn't been much engaged with by Law and Society scholars of the new ontological turn. So a movement that seeks to re-understand how we engage in the study of other peoples, how anthropologists do that. Um, it's, it's, and views them not as having different world views, but as inhabiting in essence different worlds um, and all of those worlds having equal validity. So it's it's very theoretical stuff um, and we're grappling with what that could mean in law. Yeah, and then do you have thoughts on how you can translate your research to policy changes out in the world? I, you know, policy relevance and problem solving hasn't been a priority like it hasn't been what motivates my work it's always been a bit more theory driven um but that said uh since often i am working with actors in the fields when i begin to have questions um i do get involved with i, I do end up asking questions that are that drive um people that are working <laughs> directly yeah. in the law um so for example, now the, the question of how once the Colombian Peace Court declares that territories are victims of war, um, it's my focus to figure out how to put that innovation of the court in conversation with humanitarian law and the international laws of war. So mm -hmm. I think in a way, partly my work is driven just by the impetus to show that Latin America is the site of a creation of new legal ideas um, and, and to make those ideas known and relevant outside of Latin America. And, and so how did you get involved in the NLR movement and how is your research connected to it? I, I got involved because I, I just through the places I've been. So I I was a student in the Berkeley Jurisprudence and Social Policy Program, which is sort of the seat of or one of the seats mm -hmm. of law and society in the U.S. And so, and then I went from there to to the Wisconsin Law School, which is another seat of law and society and socio legal stuff, um, where Beth Mertz, you know, who's and, and right. Heinz Klug and others have been involved. So, it's sort of through networks. Um, Berkeley and, and Wisconsin, um, but my work connects to it more at a more theoretical <laughs> and less yeah. network-based level because I do use empirical, not just empirical methods and qualitative methods, but because I engage in the theory, you know, the theoretical questions with my work that mm -hmm. interest uh, law and society scholars. Right, and that, and can you talk a little bit about the challenges that you see scholars facing who want to integrate law and social science? Yeah, I think I think I, I 
see three challenges. One is that work that's based on empirical study takes longer. Um, so if you are a person who's in trying to write in law reviews in a law school and you're trying to use empirical methods, you will find that it just takes you longer than it takes the people who are just doing doctrinal work. And that's a challenge for scholars. Yeah. <laughs> um, I think also um, if, if by integrating law and social science, you mean, you know, like publishing this kind of work in law reviews and speaking to legal academics as well as social scientists. I see a big challenge as the literature review and the emphases of law reviews. Um, I, I, you know, I think essential to good sociolegal research is engaging with what's been written before and showing how your work fits within it. And that's what a literature review is, and it is key. Mm -hmm. Whereas law reviews have no patience or time for that. Um, I think that for law reviews, the ideal is what I call the Terra Nullius Law Review article, which is an article that says, I am the first ever <laughs> to think about this and no one has ever done this before and no one exists in this field. And, um, and those two things are in direct conflict. Um, I don't think you can actually have good you know, theory building and knowledge and contribution if, if you're sticking to this idea that no one has come before me, I'm the first. Yeah. Um, and that's what law reviews sort of prioritized. And right. then um, I do think I'm beginning to feel in law, you know, there's this demand that research be of use, you know, and you did ask, you know, this, I'm pushing back here right. on your question yeah. of policy relevance. I think that's a challenge. I think there's yeah. one thing is for it to be a policy use, another is for it to be um, of theoretical interest and it, that increases our knowledge about who we are and what law is without necessarily being uh, something that can directly be implemented in an immediate problem solving mm -hmm. setting. Sure, um, that makes sense. Um... I think this is the last question. Uh, how does your research inform how you teach law school classes? I, you know, I have the privilege of teaching international law, and uh -huh. um, it's really interesting to me. To um, a lot of law students come in with a skepticism about whether international law is really law, and the reason that they have this skepticism is because it doesn't the international legal system doesn't behave in the way that they are taught to imagine that the domestic legal system works. Um, so they think of the domestic legal system as law that is enforced and has coercion attached. And so it's really one way to get them to take international law seriously is to really disrupt and challenge what they imagine to be how domestic law works by showing them that social, you know, sociological research on domestic law shows that it doesn't work the way they imagine it to. And it actually works something more similarly or has the same challenges mm -hmm. um, and some of the same features as international law and do, including, you know, problems with compliance that they imagined aren't there. So it's fun to bring in that socio-legal research to disrupt their ideas of domestic law 
in order to open them up to think about international law. I'd like to thank Francis Tung and the many researchers collaborating on this new legal realism project and for working to make this podcast happen. Visit NLR at www.newlegalrealism.org or on the blog at newlegalrealism.wordpress.com where new legal realists post on everything from law to the latest in jazz. You can also email us at newlegalrealism at gmail.com. This is April Faith Slaker with the New Legal Realism Podcast. Thanks for listening.